if we want to go back in time and to talk about uh, 2005, 2006 and all of that uh, era, and then if we want to move forward a bit and talk about the protests that erupted in uh, 2012, 2013, when uh, many groups were trying to actually demand a whole change in the regime, all the way back to 2015 specifically, when we had the trash crisis in Lebanon, the momentum was always um, was always just for the moment. It was limited to a certain amount of time. It was limited to certain protests happening, to a certain energy that was there. And then something would happen, regardless of a reason, whether it's social, political, people get caught up in different causes. Um, the movement falls apart for a bit. We uh, we just notice some changes in the leadership in the movement, and then it just falls apart in Lebanon. This is why I think that in Beirut specifically and in Lebanon, this is very different. Luna Safwan and I'm a journalist and a media trainer. The economical situation is pushing people to a, to a certain uh, to a certain stand where they want to be in the street and they don't wait anymore for leadership anymore. Unlike previous mm. protests that I've been part of and that I covered in Lebanon. So is it really a matter of just the duration of the protest because it's been going on and on for about 4 months that this feels different? Is, is it simply just time that it's persisting? For Lebanon, yes. Mm. Because mm. as Lebanese people, um, and I'm going to be very frank about this, as Lebanese people, we tend to get bored. Um, Lebanese people like to change, like the change and like to change all the time. You can notice this from, from little aspects of life. This consistency and the protests and protests taking place not only in Beirut, in the city, but in um, in different cities around the country, giving people space to actually leave the city and then go to another place and witness mm. another protest happening. Yeah. This is something that's keeping this momentum that I'm talking about going. Um, so this is one point. And then the second point would be the economical crisis that we're witnessing is pushing people to a point where there's no going back after four months where we witnessed protests that had an artistic value and artists and, you know, the love of life and parties and music mm. and then mm. witnessed protests that had tear gas and rubber bullets. Yes. We're at this, we're at this intersection now where there is no going back. We've, we're trying everything and or the people actually are trying everything. And either way, nothing vivid is changing in the country. So it's forcing them to be persistent. That's interesting. So so what really stands out this time around is that the economic pain is so bad and it's so it's affecting all types of Lebanese, whether they're it's, it's the upper class or the lower class or any anyone in between, that people cannot but stay on the street and keep demanding. Um, unlike other times where you had enough reasons to go home. Am I getting that right? I think that uh, the economical uh, situation is definitely leading people to be more persistent in the street and to, to hold their grounds when it comes to protesting. Uh, at this point, when uh, when banks, 
are controlling uh, are controlling the money of the Lebanese people when capital control is being imposed uh, or at this intersection as well where we might um, we might wake up and uh, find text messages that tell us that we can't even withdraw money right. uh, from banks and this will affect every single person it won't affect uh, the lower class or the middle class only mm-hmm. um, even the upper class will feel this because the social situation and the social life in Lebanon on as a, as a whole is changing people are no longer able to uh, to pay money or to just um, spend their money in the same way that they used to before so if right. you gather all of these facts together uh, social political and even uh, even the cultural side where students from high schools and from universities feel now more compelled to go to the streets and to protest for their future they're adding mm-hmm. up to these facts, um, motivating yeah. people maybe to to just be in the street and protest more. You know, it's nice to hear the actual examples of what are strikingly different in 2019, 2020 than let's say 2015 with the Ustink crisis, or for that matter, even 2005, the March protests. These, these specific examples, simply that, I, if I'm not mistaken today, you can only withdraw $200 every two weeks. I, I think that's the new rate. Yeah, I mean, the new rate is 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 almost two hundred dollars every two weeks. If uh, if your money is generated basically from Lebanon and not from an international account, which is the case right. for most Lebanese in Lebanon, we're not mm-hmm. all getting paid from you know from international accounts. So right. Yeah. So it's severe restrictions on financial means, and and add to that, which I liked you you said earlier, the student component, which is. There's always been students protesting throughout Lebanese history, but it is striking this time around how many students are actually willing to challenge authority. And we've seen this, whether it's schools or universities or strikes, that is definitely a a sharp contrast than even the Ustink protests. Do you think that the momentum is still there? And I don't mean it in the sense that I, I know that protests continue. Uh, demonstrations continue. People are still expressing their disdain with the current regime. There's a lot of uh, the, the the protesters have not given up. So I don't want to say that. I'm not trying to be hard on on the protest movement. But as somebody who's been covering it day in day out, the last stretch of time, do do you sense that the momentum is waning a bit? I want to be very realistic um, when talking about this, and I want to say yes. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, uh, it has definitely changed. Um, the moment, the momentum is not the same. Um, the presence of people and of the groups in the streets is not the same. It has changed, but it changed for a very important reason. Two main important reasons, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, one, people and students and all of the entities participating, um, they had a life going on. Before this crisis happened, they had commitments. Yeah, right. So not everyone is able to maintain the same consistency of being right. in the street. Right, and we right. can't expect, we can't really expect um, young men and women or unemployed entities to just handle this revolution on our behalf. It's a revolution because everyone should be involved. Right. The second aspect would be the violence. Um, the violence that happened and the injuries that we witnessed in the last couple of weeks, people losing their eyes, um, people yes. being shot by rubber bullets, this has been a game changer because no one expected 
uh, expected such violence in Lebanon. Of course, it was in response for a riot that was happening, mm-hmm. but no one was expecting a cer- this type of riot also to happen. And right. this is something that I witnessed in the streets while covering it, is that whenever there's, whenever there's a riot that's about to start, you have two groups. The groups that are calling for it to be as peaceful as it could be, and the group that really wants to turn it into a riot. So people in Lebanon are experiencing all of these changes, and they're experiencing riot for the first time, and they're experiencing the participation of young men who are very angry from different backgrounds standing next to them in downtown Beirut and throwing Mm -hmm. fireworks and water bottles at the security forces. And it takes time for protesters to adjust to this type of uh, of act or yeah. to actually support or back off. Is there something perhaps more sinister happening, which is the regime is hoping and betting that violence takes people home and lets enough people give up on this, on this moment? Uh, I think that the regime in Lebanon knows uh, the Lebanese people and the society very well when it comes to violence. Um, from the experience of the Youth Think and 2015 protests, mm. I remember that the violence was escalating gradually. And then when we reached a point where water cannons were excessively used along with tear gas, this is when the momentum of the protests started declining. Right. Um, this time, people and protesters came in more prepared. These people, all of them together as an entity, are not as hesitant as they were in 2015, because they are supported by uh, by other Lebanese people from different areas, this has right, definitely right. given the people a push. It's a very different type of, uh, of uprising because mm-hmm. if we go back to previous movements, of course they were they were. If I want to say they had multiple um, entities of people participating, um, they were colorful. Uh, right, you always right. had people joining the protests in Lebanon. However, this time, people are not only joining the protests. They are coming to Beirut ready to support the protesters in order to achieve their goals. And this is a very big banner. This is a very big term. Uh, right. when, when protesters join efforts in Beirut because they want to to actually achieve something and say that we're not going even if we're going to be beaten up and arrested, This has definitely a different taste than it had in the previous years. The thing that I noticed the most when when covering the protests, first, I'm sometimes going and I'm covering the protests because I feel that it's my responsibility to, to do it because I think that I have the ability to do it and I'm trained well enough to do it and I'm good physically. So this is my job mm-hmm. as a reporter. Right. It happens to be that I'm it happens to be that I'm a woman and it happens also to be a women-led revolution by all means. Mm-hmm. Women in this revolution are realigning protesters with their goals. Believe it or not, whenever there were clashes happening, whenever there was tension, violence that was about to to erupt and to go further. Uh, women have been on the front lines. Women have been organizing mar- marches. Uh, women have been behind the microphones 
saying the uh, the slogans and the ch- doing the chanting and all of that uh, women not i don't want to say that they have been controlling the revolution because it's it's a 50-50 revolution and mm-hmm. men are also present on the ground um, but women have been realigning this revolution whenever you know it's it's like when someone is walking and then they would have a tiny slip to the side and they feel that they want to go ahead and rest for a bit Mm -hmm. and then someone would just pass by and help them up this is exactly how i would describe women in this revolution i don't want to discredit men at all because i have witnessed the presence of amazing men and protesters and Mm -hmm. people who supported me when i was down there covering it but Women have been giving it this sort of extra magical push that, no, this is not the time to give up. No, this is not the time to be violent. We need to breathe. We need to to back off a bit. We need to uh, change our perspective, lead different discussions um, because of the energy. Not because women haven't been present in 2015 or even before that, but because this time um, women are experiencing many more challenges in this society. And if we want to delve into that, there are so many, they they would take forever to count. But this time in 2019 and 2020, women are feeling the same amount of pressure and sometimes are holding um, are holding a big amount of responsibilities that would equalize, um, I don't know, 10 responsibilities at a time. So there's no way mm-hmm. of, of messing of messing around with this revolution for women. And I've heard it from many protesters. When I go and ask them, I ask a woman, why are you still here? She would literally tell me this. There's no way that anyone could would mess this up. I'm not going to let anyone mess this revolution up. They are treating it as if it's their, um, you know, their, their little thing. In addition to that, there's also something happening in Lebanon related to freedoms, freedom of expression, human rights, freedom of uh, freedoms to be, um, freedoms for the LGBTQ community. But do I think that the protests would, would have or that these um, causes would have resulted big protests if it yeah. weren't for the economical situation? I honestly don't think so, because they right. were. these are different causes that we've all been part of and working on in different entities. And protests were happening and marches in the streets, right. but not as big and not as decentralized. So, so it's disenfranchised groups with different causes expressing their demands together. And using the revolution as a sort of uh, that this is the meeting point now where all of our grievances are shared. Is that is that a way of looking at it? That is that is sh- definitely. You notice you could notice this when you when you participate in a march um, in the streets of Beirut, like these uh, decentralized marches that has been yes. happening. One from Ashrafiye, one from uh, uh, Marlies, one from Hamra, and then they all meet in downtown Beirut. If you right, walk along right. with one of these, you would listen to the slogans. They're related to women, men, LGBTQ community, Syrians, Palestinians. They're all inclusive. Uh, they're all inclusive for the political situation, economical yes. situation, against Riyad Salame, um, against political parties, against Hezbollah. So it's it's as diverse as, as you'd think it could be. And, uh, and everyone is participating within their own entities and within their own capacities. And protesters or the people who are sort of organizing these marches logistically are making sure that every entity uh, raises their slogans and also their demands 
so that it would all yeah. be highlighted. Yeah. And what's also quite uh, fascinating this time around is that the differences among these groups are not sectarian. You just described groupings that are cross-sectarian. I mean, there's no way to define who's against Riyadh Salami today. You can't say, oh, the Maronites support him. No, the Maronites don't support him. You can't even go that way anymore. It's a, it's a healthy, healthier way of bringing people together. And even if you, even if you, I've heard this uh, this argument. Um, even if you'd say that the people who went to to Hamra Street and trashed, uh, tried to trash the central bank and then trashed an addition of banks yeah. in the streets. Yeah. Oh, we heard slogans of pro Hezbollah people. One of them went live on TV and you know uh, said that he's pro Hezbollah and that he's doing this. Sure. I mean, these are 10 guys, but not only Hezbollah is affected by, by the Riyadh Salemi decisions. Right. If you look at the bigger picture, um, he, he took decisions that basically uh, pushed us to this point, to where we are economically in Lebanon. His decisions were very centralized for to, to maybe support or to benefit the elite of the politicians and of businessmen and of all of the society that does not represent Lebanon as a whole. Right, so even right. if you have five, ten guys going on national TV while trashing bags and saying, hey, we're pro-Hezbollah, but take a moment to look at the other side. There are 30 other men who are literally um, independents, students from universities, from, you know, they're, they're not affiliated to Hezbollah, they're not affiliated right. to any political party, they're angry. So it's it's also fair to just try and remember this when we're making the comparison. So the common anger can bring different, not just different communities, different political ideologies and different perspectives together and, and share common rage, whether it's uh, the central bank governor or even the banking sector. But you brought up Hezbollah and, and I wanted to actually just go one step further into that, into that subject. Do, do you sense that in the the uh, let's say the evolution of the protest movement over time. If you're able to project just a little bit down the road, do you think uh, political change and and I'm I'm talking about not just early elections or not necessarily just a new political party emerging from the protests. I mean it in terms of structural change, where the regime is at stake and people are calling for an end to what we've known mostly since the civil war ended. Do you think these these principles are realistic so long as there is a group like Hezbollah? I don't mean them in particular, and I don't mean them as a, as one case. I mean it just as a group that is able to dictate certain security issues and has a means to violence which other groups don't have. And if they do have it, it's far less and it's irrelevant. Do, do you sense that this kind of movement is sustainable with a group like Hezbollah that, that can at times intimidate which seems which seems to be supportive and protective of the post-war regime order there's always one thing that i discuss with uh, with friends with even with protesters when we're when we're on the ground just talking and is that i tell them and i try to remind them that we're never going to get rid of political parties in lebanon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as in 100% because there are no politics without uh, political blocks, political parties, and, you know, different point of views. Yes. However, as you said, if you just associate all of the political parties and just put them in one palm of your hand, you have Hezbollah facing them. As long as Hezbollah has the means 
to uh, control the security situation in the country, mm-hmm. to control the borders, to take away the power of the Lebanese army. And let's be realistic. Um, they are doing this. They are playing this part as well. They are mm-hmm. controlling uh, major security decisions that are being taken in Lebanon. And they are an armed uh, party. They have, they have yeah. the means to actually go to the streets and make decisions while holding, you know, their their weapons in the street, yeah. regardless yeah. whether or not they did it yet right now in this, you know, in this past phase. Yeah. When if we think about it, as long as this entity exists not as a pure political party, but as an armed political party in Lebanon, having a fair state and a fair government and a government uh, that governs Lebanon equally, not only according to sex, but according to to different sex, but according to different areas, to different uh, uh, supporting groups, as long as this entity is there and they have their weapons and they're just holding it up while making decisions, we're not going to have um, the society or the country that we are actually aspiring for in these protests. Because one thing that is not Mm. being said loudly, the way it was being said at the beginning of the protest was that the slogan, uh, Killon, Killon, all of them, all of them means all of them. And Nasrallah Nasrallah is one of them. We witnessed this in the past month, but then it has been avoided because we saw what happened in the streets when Nasrallah was being mentioned. So my opinion is that it's not, of course, it's not a local decision to take away Hezbollah's uh, arms or to or to just change this political uh, division that's happening in Lebanon. What's centralized here is how we talk to people as protesters, how the communities talk together. And the challenge is, if we can, as Lebanon protests and as people participating in it and as people covering it, get through to the other side to explain to the other side that if you want a state that respects you economically, socially, culturally, you cannot have multiple armies or multiple armed groups. This is this won't be a state. As long as we have this, this won't be a state. Let's say people avoid the subject of, of their weapons and people avoid the... Um, People avoid the responsibilities Hezbollah has bestowed upon themselves. That they just talk about economics and corruption. Do you think that kind of focusing on the economic pain is a strategy that could put Hezbollah's weapons later on on uh, up for discussion, or is it something that's? And in other words, which which needs to come first in your mind, or or is it really just all of the above at once? Like going back to Kildonyani Kildon from the beginning. If I'm to analyze this and to talk about this from a from a perfectionist point of view and the best scenario possible out there, it would be to just put Hezbollah's uh, Hezbollah's issue up front mm, uh, mm. and the importance of disarmament, the importance of having one centralized power, which is the yes. army as an entity in Lebanon. Mm. But given what I've witnessed in the streets, when you're just going to cover a protest or to cover a discussion happening in a tent in downtown Beirut. And then you'd see young men who literally know nothing about what's being discussed storm in and burn the tent and kick people out only because someone told them that Hassan Nasrallah was being mentioned Mm. while you were sitting there literally discussing recycling. 
Um, <laughs> it's it, 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 it's what happened so many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that we cannot, in that case, put uh, Hezbollah up front. As much as I would personally love to think that this would happen, but no, the economical crisis is up front now because it's the only thing forcing Lebanese to get up move and go to the streets. Anything related to disarmament to disarmament, or to limiting the uh, um, the effect of a certain political bloc, political party, or to, mm-hmm. um, you know, dividing the power, redividing the power would have to wait. First thing that needs to happen is an economical solution in Lebanon, and then a change in the electoral law. This electoral law that is based on the sects in so many ways that no one is almost represented equally in Lebanon from us as Lebanese citizens. Right. And then finding a cabinet, whether it's this one, the cabinet that has been elected now, and they are very optimistic. They think that they can um, achieve certain goals in Lebanon, choosing a cabinet or uh, electing a cabinet that really represents the people in the streets after changing the electoral law and performing early on elections, this will lead from an economical crisis that's, let's say, that will start being solved in a tangible way in the next month. This will lead to a political discussion that might highlight Hezbollah or other political entities that has been controversial. And in Hezbollah's case, not only controversial, but that has been catastrophic to Lebanon in terms of uh, of wars, of uh, of decisions, and of presence on the ground. So but thinking really, that it's, we it's can achieve lo- this yeah. now, no. yeah. So it's really a it's a this is a long term process. Is a very long-term readjustment. That there's no short-term. There's no immediate sort of, uh, if I can use the word here, victory for the protest movement. That there's, it's just a, it's a long duration ahead of us and patience. Yeah, it is. And people in the streets and Lebanese people need to be reminded that no revolution achieved goals immediately. And the revolutions in the Arab world and the Arab Spring, which we thought were going to achieve something in a very quick matter of time, turned either into a war or elected the next dictator. Right, so, right, right, right. So we need time. Lebanon needs time. We have an accumulation of a 30-year war. We don't even have a history book. Sometimes I personally go back to my parents or to people I trust to ask them about certain personalities and about certain decisions that are being made now that still have the effect of the civil war, which I never witnessed, um, you know, yeah. as a person. So it's it's a long way. It, it, this is because we cannot sugarcoat it. That's the important thing is right now, four months in, to stop sugarcoating the revolution and what's happening and to just saying, yes, it's going to work. It might work, but it needs time. And there's there's a big to-do list. There are many things that we need to check out and to cross out before being able to discuss something such as influential um, armed political parties. The only times I turned to TV in the last four months was to watch what protests looked like. Not not for analysis, not even for coverage necessarily, it's just images. I enjoyed watching the split screens of protesters all of them sort of at once in unison. But beyond that, I think I spent 99% of my time on Twitter. And I refreshed my Twitter feed whenever things were happening live. 
And that could be a protest on the ring, could be clashes on the ring, uh, could be the uh, internal security confronting protesters, it could be the army in downtown, the tear gas, the water, all of that. Twitter. And your name was one of those people and various others as well. There's no patience at the moment. And do you think that has shifted the way people behave, at least when it comes to information, that they expect more and they demand more and they, in, in return they have put more pressure? I think that um, I can I can answer this in, um, in, two, in two different parts. The first mm. part would be when I want to talk about what I have been doing on social media and when I, why have I been focusing so much on social media? This mm. is something that I've learned from covering the Arab Spring. Um, and it's how citizen journalists turned to be journalists in, in real time. But they mm. happened to be citizen journalists because they were in certain areas where all of the action was happening. So they were citizens of these areas, but at the same time, they had to do their work as journalists. So it was very close to home for them. And right. this is this is where I really, as a journalist, I stopped differentiating between a citizen journalist and a journalist uh, himself or herself. When you're working in a journalistic entity, um, you just automatically become affiliated with the situation if it's especially if it's sitting close to home. Right. Um, right. So what I have, I had a choice to make. I could either sit down and just observe what's happening, talk to a couple of people in the street, and go write a feature about it. And I wouldn't mind doing so. And it's important because not everyone could keep up with the pace of what's happening in Lebanon. Some people would uh, would need to read the whole feature to understand what happened in that specific moment. Right. But at the same time, I have the energy and the ability to tweet about it, tweet about it as if I had my own live feed. It Part of it came from my dissatisfaction with the local media and what the local media has been showing and what the diaspora community has been looking forward to and hasn't been able to uh, to find on the local media here. They needed more details. They needed more more people. They needed more color. That's interesting. So, did, did you have that in mind when you were covering that you, you were yeah. speaking to that kind of audience? Was was that yeah. sort of, yes. okay, okay. Hmm. My my main my main target was not to really inform people um, who are in the street about what's happening or to um, make sure that um, that they read about it later. Uh, the people in the street understand what's happening around them, and they're a part of it. There are many people outside the street, either who are at their homes because for certain reasons they cannot participate, or people who are abroad who expected a certain coverage but rarely got it. They needed right. this. Um, they also, a part of them, needed this subjective point of view. I could go there as a and act um, and act like a total objective person. But as I said, this is this is hitting close to home, and it's actually home. So between being a pure journalist with an objective mind, or going there and trying to get as much color as possible, even if it means getting hit by tear gas, and then actually yeah. showing people what it's like to be hit by tear gas, um, I think that this has been um, this has been very um, essential for my reporting. And this I is see. why I really counted a lot on social media. Um, I didn't, honestly, I didn't want to, to write features. I didn't want to spend three hours writing a feature when I could be in the street observing what's happening. Um, 
we're all getting, we're all being asked a lot of questions as journalists who are here. And I can't really spend a lot of time not being in the street and not understanding what people want, what different entities want. So this automatically led me to be online for that amount of time. To go back a bit, you said that you were you were um, unimpressed and dissatisfied with local media. Is it yeah. does it have to do with their hesitation to fully embrace the revolution, or is it a separate issue altogether? That's just the way they report. Period. That you were not you were not yeah, content. It's the, it's the way they it's the way they report. I don't understand the need to keep on asking people what are they here for. Everyone knows why people on the why people are on the streets. Let's talk about the color of the streets, um, certain areas, certain streets. Why are these streets monumental? Why are people going back to this or to that? Your you know, opinion you, as a reporter being on the ground, and so I think that this is uh, this is what triggered me in the local media coverage. You know, you, you you remind me of moments where I actually put the TV on mute, and those were the moments <laughs> when yeah. the when the reporter would start asking those questions, I would hit the mute button and I would just sort of watch a bridge full of protesters or a roadblock or or anyone protesting. I thought that was more rewarding than the questions being asked. But you're, you're also pointing at something else, which is the the old interpretation of journalism, which is unbiased and fact-based reporting. I don't think traditional media is doing it properly in Lebanon. That they're, it's, it's, it's almost like a mediocre attempt at that. One could argue that the, the regime supporters, whatever they are, have had a very long, very, very, they've had a very favorable coverage for a very long time. So it, it, one could argue that it's only fair to give the protesters their valued time at this moment, that they need to be heard. And that could be interpreted as being unbiased, that you need to hear what the protesters have to say. We know what the regime stands for. Let's know what the protesters stand for. And I think that's fair. But these this almost silly way of approaching it, and which is what you're describing, it is a very unimpressive journey. And, and I want to ask you, what is it about traditional media that has led them to that point, at least in Lebanon, from your perspective? Why do you think it's sort of become that? sort of standard basic questions that nobody really wants to nobody wants to answer we all know what they're there for like you said or can you can you point the finger at anything that has led that kind of journalism to a sense a bit down the drain i think it's uh, it's their indirect political affiliations to mm, uh, mm, to mm. political parties and uh, political blocs right. and um, the effect and the role that these political parties play when it comes to local media, right. how local media is being um, is being financed, um, who are the supporters of these uh, certain uh, um, publications or certain right. TV stations, right. they indirectly impose red lines. Um, mm-hmm. And you could also notice from the coverage of some of the reporters, some of the reporters from the same TV channel some of them would actually say out loud that security forces are attacking protesters in an unjust way. And then another reporter would actually say the army is doing its job. This definitely has to do also with the with the personal aspects and the personal views of the reporter. But at mm. the same time, I am sure that um, TV stations impose either this kind of reporting or allow this balance, you know, to, to, right. to be 
seen as balanced from a certain point of view. We allow the French reporters to report according to their own values, but at the same right. time, we don't cross that red line. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's not really just traditional media. It's to a degree, it's political party propaganda trying to navigate. And you you come in and you're an independent journalist with an independent view. And no, it, in a way, you fill the gap, which is people want to know what's happening without being without hearing the party line. And I think that only a citizen journalist can do that. And at least in the Lebanese context, it's very difficult to have an, a fully independent mm -hmm. source of information that's funded. And Lebanon tends to be political affiliations, unfortunately. And and this is why it's it's great that we have these. Uh, we have these online initiatives that are that emerged in the past year or that are emerging now right, um, when right. it comes to independent journalism. So I think yeah. that these are essential um, to encourage uh, the younger generation, if any of them is thinking of uh, taking the path of journalism or of working in journalism, to be actually associated to these independent entities instead of directly going to local TV stations or right. local publications. Yeah. And at least independent enough, whether it's Megaphone or, or any of these kinds of, uh, there's some money involved, but it's not the old kind of money that we're used to. Exactly, like Megaphone, Daraj, Rasif, and now there's the, the public source. Um, yes. Many right. entities in, in Lebanon or, or in the MENA that, that, uh, that should have a lot of exposure as, uh, as yeah. a new form of, uh, of media that is definitely more independent than what we have. Yeah. I think uh, you've helped portray the journalism landscape and also what it's like to <laughs> simply observe and report on a revolution. And I think... Many of us are lucky, and we'll remember this time later in life, that we were able to see this with our own eyes. And it's I'm glad you're doing this as a as a almost a service to the diaspora and the average person that's not able to be there. But it is a thrilling experience to be able to see what happened the last four months, the good stuff and the bad stuff. As we're wrapping up, I, it's important to to highlight something on why I felt compelled to do this and why I understand the need for the diaspora and for people who don't live in Lebanon, even mm -hmm. foreigners, yes. to understand what's happening here from this point of view. It's how I it's how I was hoping to understand the news while I was not in Lebanon because I was not in Lebanon when the revolution started. I was oh. living abroad. And I was finishing a project abroad and then the 17th of October happened and I had booked a ticket to visit my parents and I came and I ended up moving back here because I was not being able to follow up on the news the way I wanted to from abroad. I was watching local TV channels on my laptop and I was getting pissed. Oh, like, wow. why are you asking these questions? And then it just hit me. I'm a journalist. I should be doing this work. Why do I expect others to report for me? This is This is where I should be. So, so yeah, so I'm hoping to be able you, to continue you, doing this. You're the reporter that you wanted to see, you wanted to hear from. Personally, yes, I'd like to think that, but I hope that I'm doing half of the <laughs> half of the work that people expect me to do, or I'm helping in any way. Yeah, I think I think you're doing all of the work anyone could expect you to do. And I want to ask you, Luna, where 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 were you based before? I was based in the Mina, but I was uh, living in Turkey. So I was traveling to the MENA a lot, but uh, mainly I had moved to Turkey back in uh, back in April. 
Well, you know what? I think Turkey can make do with their own issues. They don't need you for the moment. I think <laughs> Lebanon needs to do a little more. <laughs> so that's exactly. okay. <laughs> Turkey, yeah. Turkey will be Turkey will have their own problems. They'll they'll get their own reporters <laughs> to do that work. I'm glad you're back True. in Lebanon. <laughs> Luna, thank yeah, you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for this opportunity.